0: and open to the book of Romans Romans chapter 1 verse 8 through verse 15 is our text this morning uh, the second of our must just through uh, the entire book and if you have picked up a Bible from either of the information tables uh, Romans 1 is on page 939 939 939 And I want to ask you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, uh, inspired, inerrant word this morning, Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 15. Hear the reading of God's word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you now allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. Would you do what we need in this moment for our good? You know the needs of your children. Affect us, convict us, encourage us, whatever you need to do through the preaching of your word for our good and for the glory of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. As the author of Ecclesiastes says, it would be better to go to a funeral than to a wedding feast or graduation celebration, birthday party, or the like. Now, that text has been on my mind recently because, in the last probably just the last four weeks, I've been able to attend multiple funeral services or funeral visitations, or even just uh, heard a funeral uh, that was delivered online, unable to, to go but, but to listen to it. And as, as I was exposed to these funerals or funeral, funeral visitations or these funeral messages, even online, I just found myself deeply impacted. And, and that's not new. I, I feel like as I look back over my life, there have been several times that particularly the Lord has used funerals, has, has used the death of believers to greatly impact me. And as I think back and I just ask myself now, why? What is it that's going on? After all, I'd rather not uh, simply have to wait for a funeral to be moved in this way again. So as I've tried to think about it and tried to evaluate, what is it that's so powerful? Why is it that it's had such a great impact on me? I think it simply comes down to this. A funeral message, sometimes in particular, but even just the circumstances surrounding the death of a believer, allows us to do something that is almost exceptional in life. And what it allows us to do is it allows us to view the details of someone's life, the way they thought, the way they spoke, the way they lived. I mean, this isn't common in regards to living people, is it? I mean, all the time, I trust that we're having conversations wherein, if you and I are dialoguing, one of us might say to the other, man... The evident grace of God in so and so's life, and point to something that they did or said or whatever that was extremely beneficial, extremely helpful. But rarely does that conversation then lead to something like this. Man, that's a good point about our brother and the evident grace of God in his life. How about we get about 15 of us together, circle up, and just tell stories and anecdotes about the clear grace of God in the individual's life so that it'll allow us to get a snapshot of how they lived? That's never happened. I, in my life, it's never happened. But that kind of thing happens all the time around the death of a believer, doesn't it? A believer dies, and before you know it, you're circling around with individuals, telling anecdotes, telling stories about ways when the clear grace of God was manifested in that person's life. The funeral message, at its best, will uphold the gospel and also point to these areas, the grace of God and the individual's life. I think that's so moving because there are some things that are better caught than taught. There are some areas in life where in addition to, I don't mean at the expense of this, but in addition to being given lectures and taught how it is that we must think and and, and live and do, it's helpful to see it modeled, lived out, something that we're given that we can imitate. And this reality that we need models, that we need individuals to imitate in our Christian walk, wasn't lost on Paul. In fact, he regularly makes reference to this reality. He is not shy about using himself as an example and calling us to imitate him. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you, be imitators of me. Only a few chapters later in chapter 11, verse 1, he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. To the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. One chapter later in Philippians, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. In 1 Thessalonians, he commends them, in chapter 1, verse 6, for imitating him. Before adding in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, you in yourselves have been given an example to imitate, because Paul and the others have been around them. Paul understood that a crucial element in discipleship is exposing the details of your life to someone so that they will have a model to imitate. That we disciple one another is by showing what it looks like to love and follow and seek the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I argued last week from the first seven verses of Romans that I think one of Paul's main goals in the book of Romans. As he says, I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, that that phrase, for the sake of his name, really gets at something that he wants. Paul longs to see others caught up in bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ, to making much of him, to seeking his honor. And Paul understands that a person seeks the honor of Christ when they understand how much we are loved by Christ, which then produces in our hearts love for Christ, which then moves us to see others wanting to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. And so it's not by mistake then, if Paul's wanting them to get caught up in that, that he says to them in verse 7, not simply to all those in Rome who are called to be saints, but specifically to all those in Rome who are loved by God. He's wanting them to understand how God has loved them. In fact, over the next few chapters, Paul's going to lay that out in extreme detail how God has demonstrated his love for us and what Christ has done for us. But now, in addition to showing them God loves you, he wants them ultimately to be caught up then and having a love for God and seeking the honor of Jesus Christ. So where does he start then next? After telling them that they're loved by God, I think he starts with where he does in many letters, namely giving them a model of what a heart looks like that loves the Lord and seeks his honor. You see, in many of Paul's letters, he gives an autobiographical section. This little quick glimpse into, here's what he's thinking, here's what he wants to do, here's how he's driven, here's what he's practicing, all of these things, and that's not my mistake. I think he's saying to you, I've shown you what I'm like. I've shown you how I think. I've shown you what I do. Now, imitate me, because what the Lord has done in my heart, by his grace, is he's given me a heart that loves the Lord and wants to seek his honor. And that's why he can say later, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what we then see in Romans 1, 8 through 15, is a model of a heart that loves the Lord and seeks his honor. So if that's what we want for ourselves as well, then it would make sense that we would pay attention to what this heart of Paul's looks like. That's what I want us to do this morning. I simply want to lay out in the text this morning four things that we see about Paul's heart in this text. What does a heart look like that loves the Lord and seeks his honor? Number one, it's a heart That is thankful to the Lord. A heart that is thankful to the Lord. Paul begins first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now Paul had not made it to Rome. He wasn't the one that went there with the gospel and preached so that they believed. But Paul heard As had the rest of the believing world that the gospel had made it to Rome and it had captured people's hearts so that there were believers in Rome and Paul said when he got that news that news that's reverberating throughout the known world that there are believers in Rome that these individuals in Rome have faith in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ Paul said my response was that I gave thanks to God for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world now, now notice Paul doesn't say I, I think you that you have faith in Christ not as if that would be entirely inappropriate but this is a brother who understands the only reason that anyone has faith is if God has been gracious to them God has granted them this right God has turned their hearts given them new hearts and so he says I see what's going on in your life, your faith that's being proclaimed in all the world, and I recognize that that faith is present because God has been gracious to you. And so I thank God for your faith that's being proclaimed in all the world. But, but let's not skip over this too quickly. Paul's response is to give thanks. He is thankful. And this is standard for Paul. You know, it's funny that I think this can work against Paul in some ways when we read these. Sometimes we see these kinds of statements, I thank God for you. We can think of Paul's other letters and think, well, he says that all the time. And it's true, he does say it all the time. 1 Corinthians 1, I mean, let me just pause for a second. The church at Corinth is a church that's so messed up that if one of our interns said, I think God is calling me to go pastor this church and it looks just like the church at Corinth, we would all go, are you sure? Maybe you wanna go to church planting. Maybe it'd be easier to go be among pagans than to go to a church like this. And what's one of the first things Paul says to the church at Corinth? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. To the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you. To the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. To the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for you. 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to you, to God for you. To Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, I thank God whom I serve. As did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Or even to Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And this is something Paul didn't simply think should characterize him, but them as well. First Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. In Jesus Christ, sometimes I think this works against Paul because we think we were tempted just to skip over these verses because, again, this is what Paul always says. But don't miss the point. The reason this is why Paul, what Paul always says is because thankfulness is what characterizes Paul's heart. And it should characterize our hearts as well. Now, I'm going to ask the question one way and then turn around and ask it another way. Let me just ask it just plainly. Is your heart and is my heart characterized by thankfulness? If you prick us, do we bleed thankfulness? Do we look around at the gifts that God has given us in life and exude thankfulness? Now, perhaps another way to ask the question is to ask this. Is your heart characterized by complaining and covetousness? Now, I think the reason that can be a helpful question to ask as well Is because complaining and covetousness are what come from a heart that's not thankful right when 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 you look and instead of being driven to give thanks for what god's given in your life instead you look and you think i don't have this and that bothers me or somebody else does have that and i want that complaining or covetousness flows out of a heart that's not thankful and so maybe one of the ways that we can just diagnose do we have thankful hearts is to ask am i characterized by complaining and covetousness Because we shouldn't be. We we don't want to be. And maybe one of the ways that we can fight complaining and covetousness is to pursue the righteousness of praying, God, give me a heart that's thankful. And then employ the diligent labor and work of cultivating in our own hearts thankfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful stories I've heard, I think that illustrates this, is one I've told many times. I'm going to tell it again just because I can't think of a better one. D.A. Carson tells a story of a student of his at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School years ago. The student uh, had been on the mission field with his wife and young children. And the mission organization that sent him was just so impressed with them, and they had some work they wanted to be done in the seminary, that they said to him, if you'll come back to the States, what we would like to do is pay for you to have further education so that you'll be even more equipped to go back over there and, and labor in the seminary. And so he's sure enough that the man and his wife and young children come back to the States and they move to where D.A. Carson is a professor just outside of Chicago at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he starts laboring away on his Ph.D. there. He's not too far into his studies when he gets some kind of cancer in his stomach, intestines, in this area. He has to go through uh, intensive treatment for it that leave, leaves him just, just, just worn out and, and, and fragile. Um, in fact, he becomes so weak that he has, just, has to stop his studies, put them on hold. But after a while, they deem that they think they've done enough treatment and that he's okay, and, and he begins to regain his strength, and he's able to go back and begin his studies again. And he does them for a good while until the cancer comes back. And this time, not only does he have to go through all the rigorous devastating treatment he went for, through before but they have to remove a large portion of his intestines so that the rest of his life even if he survives this cancer the rest of his life he's going to be eating in small amounts and just have, having to you know run to the bathroom regularly right there's not this great time to digest his food this is going to now characterize the rest of his life but he ends up getting past cancer finds his strength again starts to live his now new life again goes back to his studies and then his wife gets cancer and she dies a few young children a man whose life has been completely altered devastated by this disease of cancer and this is where he is and this individual sticks out in Carson's mind because Carson says I remember when he came to our church to give a report as missionaries often do right come and 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 share what the Lord's done in their life and their work. And a number were interested in this night gathering because they knew the man's story, what all he had been through. And Carson said, for 30 minutes, the brother stood up before the congregation and for 30 minutes gave thanks to God. He thanked God that God had given him the opportunity to come back and pursue his studies. He thanked God that God had gotten him through cancer. You think god that god had given him this gracious gift of a wife who loved the lord and would follow her husband even to the other side of the world who raised her children in a way that was honoring to the lord jesus christ he thanked god that he had her as long as he did he thank god that his children would be able to grow up in a home where they would hear the gospel and know other brothers and sisters in jesus christ in a local church context where they could be supported and encouraged he exuded thankfulness in god and I will not ever forget how Carson ends his story. He said, after all that and me hearing this, just being amazed and overwhelmed, Carson said, and brothers and sisters, that is normal Christianity. And he's right, isn't he? There should be nothing exceptional about that. Christians of all people, have you listened to what we have sung this morning? We should be a people who are characterized by thankfulness. If you want to know what a heart looks like that loves God and is driven for Christ's honor, the answer is, one, it is a heart that is thankful to the Lord. Second, a heart that treasures prayer. A heart that treasures prayer. Verses 9 and 10, "...for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of a Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers." asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last and succeed, succeed in coming to you. I won't do it for the sake of time, but I could go through all of Paul's letters as well and show you that prayer was a consistency in Paul's life. I can simply say this, all the verses that I made reference to where Paul says, I give thanks to God for you, he was doing that in the context of praying. Prayer was something that regularly characterized his life. Paul can say, always in my prayers, I think, my prayers being a reference to the fact that he had a regular pattern of prayer in his life. I don't mean here that Paul never gave himself to spontaneous prayer, as you and I do. You run into a brother or sister on the street, and they share something, and you say, hey, can I just stop and pray for you? Of course Paul did that. You come to a point where you need wisdom and you just want to stop and pray, of course Paul did that. But it looked like Paul also had just prayers in his life, a pattern of prayers. I don't know if it was the same time and the same circumstance every day, but Paul regularly just planned in his life prayers. And whenever he did that, he gave time to give thanks to God for believers, as he's telling the Romans here. Paul was one who is characterized by prayer, and he saw his prayer, note in, in verse 9, that he saw his prayer to be an act of service to the Lord. He saw it as an act of obedience. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of a son, that without ceasing I, all, I make mention of you always in my prayers. I think one of the reasons Paul mentions that he serves the Lord with his spirit, or in his spirit, is not because Paul's saying something like, when I do other things, my spirit's not involved. But I think what he's saying is this. I want to show how I serve God, not with reference to, though he does this, but not with reference to what I do with my hands and feet, and my travel, and my work, and all of these things. But I think he's saying here, I, I serve him in ways in my inner being, namely in prayer. Prayer. He saw his prayer as an act of service, an act of obedience to God. He was called by the grace of God to be an apostle and further the glory of Jesus Christ. And one of the main ways he saw then to carry out that mission was by praying. He also notes that he serves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul does everything he does in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul lives his life with an understanding that I've been united with Christ so that Jesus, who lived and died and who was raised on the third day, and my faith is in him, that's transformed my life. I'm now united with Christ. And everything I do is done as if it's done in the sphere of the gospel. One of the reasons I want to mention that reality is because when you and I go to pray, I think that's one of the main times the enemy attacks us. One of the reasons I think we don't notice his attacks at other times is we're just too busy. Right? We're kind of running around. It's hard to dwell on the attacks of the enemy. But if you stop and pray, you've no doubt noticed this as well. It's oftentimes in those moments in our stillness before the Lord that the enemy comes and he begins to accuse. But if you can think like Paul, even my service of prayer now is done in the sphere of the gospel. I serve the Lord in my prayer in the gospel of his son then even in that moment of prayer remembering that we do it in the gospel can be a reminder to us that right now I come to the Lord able to approach his throne boldly knowing that he accepts me knowing that he approves of me knowing that he is pleased with me and loves me and has declared me righteous before him because of the gospel because of what Jesus Christ his son has done for me after all our hope of approaching god is not rooted in the fact that we deserve it on our own merits this is one of the reasons in our praying that we say things like in jesus name it's not just some kind of phrase that we talk on to the end of our prayers just so everyone knows get ready to look up now but we say in jesus name because we're verbally declaring something i hope that we all know to be true and something that should not just become a rote practice in our lives but we're verbally declaring god the reason i can approach you is because i have a high priest jesus christ the righteous one his righteousness is my righteousness his death paid the penalty for my sin his resurrection means that i am declared righteous and so it is in his name on his authority that i boldly approach your throne that i run to you as my father Paul can say he he serves with the spirit of the gospel of a son. And Paul also, we see here, prays toward things that he's working toward. He he prayed for things that he was working toward. Note that he says specifically in verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to be with the Roman believers. But instead of merely saying, I'm here, I want to get there, let me see how I can figure it out and make my plans and do all of that, Paul's showing the Romans, when I encounter things in my life that I want to do, that I know serve the purpose of God's redemptive work in his church and serve the purpose of bringing glory to God, instead of merely figuring and merely planning, Paul prays. He was praying, God, help me get to Rome. Now, it's hard to miss that if you turn back one page in the book of Acts, that Paul's in Rome, isn't he? Having appealed to Caesar, he's taken by Rome, imprisoned, where in his final days he sits in a house prison of sorts with Roman guards continually changing their shifts. With whom he is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again and again, so that he can say to Philippians, the whole Roman guard has heard the gospel. Paul prays even for those things that he's working toward. Why? Because prayer is not just a throwaway thing that we do, now get past it, and now make all your plans and do all your work and do all your figuring. No, 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 no. Prayer is the means by which we appeal to God to do all things whether we feel that they're in our power or not paul shows us a heart that is thankful to the lord a heart that treasures prayer and then third a heart that loves the church a heart that loves the church now what i particularly like about this point is the other day in our intern meeting we were working out, this kind of came out fluidly. Uh, we, were, we were discussing the text, and I told them kind of how I was thinking through the text, and how I wanted to show that this text was, was a text whereby Paul was, was holding up himself, the details of his life, his motivations, his thoughts, his heart, and was saying, imitate me. And so it, it kind of became a, a game of family feud, if you know what I'm, I'm talking about. Not that we were fighting, feud in that sense, I mean the, the, the game show. And uh, what we did was we divided the interns in half, And I said to these interns on this side, um, I've looked at this text and come up with four points that I want to make from the text. And so my four points are listed just by number with blanks. And so you all talk together and see if you can come up with what would be my points. And uh, if you fail, then the other side is going to get a chance to see if they can figure it out. And they succeeded. But one of the things that was most satisfying in that moment Um, was not that we had stumbled onto this game show model that might help us going forward in our intern meetings, but it it was that when they looked at verses 11 through 13, which are verses that give all kinds of details. I'm going to read them here in a second. They looked at these verses, they discussed them together, and their conclusion was, these verses show us a heart that loves the church, which is exactly what I'd written down. So when I first wrote it down, I thought, Am I I taking from this text what's there? And then they said it, and I thought, yes, this is great. So the interns and I agree on this one. Verses 11 through 13, I believe, show a heart that loves the church. Why? Because here's what Paul says. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I've often intended to come to you but thus far has been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles even adds in verse 15 that he's eager to go and preach the gospel to them who are in Rome when Paul heard about the fact that the gospel had reached Rome and there were believers there instead of going the Gospels made it to Rome good I'm not responsible for that now. I can go elsewhere. Not only did he give thanks for them, but it created in him a longing to want to be with them. Why? Because he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to build them up in faith. He says specifically that he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift. Verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now that text could mean... It could mean, and it may well mean, but it could mean that Paul wanted to come and and, and lay hands on them and pray that for each of the believers, the Spirit would give them a gift that they could use to minister in the church. It could indeed mean that. Uh, We see it seems like in Paul's letter to Timothy, the elders at one point had prayed for Timothy and the Spirit had given one of them a, a, a word of prophecy and they prophesied and Paul saw it as a gift given to Timothy. Perhaps one of them was saying to Timothy, the Lord's equipped you and is going to use you in this way. And then paul's saying now yes that's true it may be that but i don't think it is i think what paul when he says some spiritual gift i actually think what he means is not i want to come and give you a gift that will be then your possession that can be used by you because i think if that were the case i think he would make it plural right i think he would say i long to impart to you some spiritual gifts.'" Why? Because one of the things that Paul notes in the book of Corinthians is that the Spirit delights in a church, not to give a uniform gift, but a variety of gifts, a diversity of gifts, so that each individual is gifted differently and then coming together, they work together so that with each joint with which the body is supplied, it can be built up in love. So I didn't think that's what Paul's talking about, although it could be. I think rather here's what Paul's saying. I think by impart to them spiritual gift, he's simply saying, we would use maybe a bit different vernacular, but I think he's saying something like this, I want to come to you so that the Spirit will equip me to minister to you, so that the Spirit would gift me, so that, so that through the Spirit's gifting in my life, I may impart blessing to you and strengthen you. That is, I'm going to go praying, Spirit, when I get there, strengthen me and equip me and gift me because I want to build up these believers. Now, if that's the case, we can already see Paul's love and the fact that he just wanted to be among them, that he longed to see them, that he wanted to encourage them. That all screams Paul loved them. But if this is the case, that Paul wanted the Spirit to gift him for their sake, then I think that also shows us Paul's love for the church. Why? Because think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul outlines spiritual gifts and how they're to function in the church. After in chapter 12, he talks about how the Spirit gives a diversity of gifts, but we all work together as one body. What does he then say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? We know that chapter well, right? The love chapter. Well, that chapter is not just on its own. It comes in a context of Paul beginning to say, okay, now I've talked about all these gifts now chapter 13, but brothers and sisters, listen to this, Paul says. If you're so gifted that you can speak in the tongues of angels, or you can understand all mysteries, or you can, you know, move mountains by your faith, or whatever it is, whatever you can do, if you do those things and you don't have love, they're all pointless. Paul's saying, I don't care if you can walk up and lay your hand on somebody and the Lord and they're healed of cancer. If that's not an act of love, it's pointless. It's pointless. This is why. Then, after 13, 13 ends in chapter fourteen. Chapter thirteen. How does he then begin? Chapter fourteen of First Corinthians. He begins by saying this. He gives them a command: pursue love, and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that may prophesy. Why? Because Paul's showing us. Here's how it works. You don't pursue spiritual gifts just for the sake of spiritual gifts. You pursue them. You desire them. You earnestly desire them because you're pursuing love. So the way Paul, I think, would envision it is this way. If Paul were to come visit us next Sunday morning, between now and next Sunday morning, I think Paul would be saying this, God, I love your people. I want to love them more. I want to love them and serve them. Pursuing love. Consequently, Lord, would you give me a gift by your Spirit whereby I can strengthen them? So that when I show up, your spirits equip me to minister to them so that they're built up, pursue love, and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I think Paul's very desire to impart to them some spiritual gift, to minister to them by the way that the Spirit equips him, is showing them, I love you. You, whom I've never met, I love. Because it's only in the context of pursuing love that Paul ever desires spiritual gifts. He never desires them on their own, but only in the context of pursuing love. So Paul loved the church. Now again, just by sake of then, if this text is written so that we may see the model of Paul's faith and imitate it, then let's just ask ourselves this question. Would we say that we are characterized by love for the church? And as, Paul, as Tom said earlier in praying for the graduating seniors, that's one of our main desires when anyone joins us is that the Lord would just cultivate them in them a love for the church a love for God's people how might that look in your life let me just give you one example this isn't creative I'm taking it directly from this text one of the ways that this can show itself in your life that you can begin to cultivate love in your life is by making a regular pattern of prayer in your life saying this God I love these people Would you equip me by your spirit with gifts to serve them? When you hear on Sunday night that someone has a need and you're gripped by them in love, pursue that love. God, please, I'm not only going to pray for them, but I ask that your spirit would equip me. I earnestly desire spiritual gifts because I want this person to be built up and strengthened and edified. That's what love looks like. Can you imagine a church? If all of us love one another like that, So that our prayers are not only just prayers that the Lord would do something, but that the Lord, through the Spirit, would equip us and gift us to serve them, to build them up. All of a sudden, sudden, we would not be showing up on Sunday mornings merely to say, I wonder how the preacher will do today, or I wonder how the music's going to be today. But we would show up saying, yes, I've been praying all week that the Spirit would equip me with an opportunity to minister to these people because I love them. That's the heart of one that loves God. And seeks the honor of Christ, it necessarily bleeds over into love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, point four a heart that understands the glory of the gospel. A heart that understands the glory of the gospel. Honestly, in the time of offering, as Katie was playing just so beautifully, gosh, that was such a blessing. Uh, this is always the conflict in my heart. I want to stop and, and listen and give thanks to God for skill that he's given musicians. And also want to look over my sermon manuscript one more time. And so I was sitting over there trying to do both and I was looking at, at this point, a heart that understands the gospel, and I just said to myself, if I didn't already have this on the slide, I would, I would change this point just to make it a little stronger. So if you want to make, you change your notes, if you have the freedom. Um, I think I would say... A heart that's captured by the glory of the gospel. Because that's what I mean by understand. When I see in this text how Paul ends the section, what I see is a heart that's just captured by the glory of the gospel. Why? Because here's what he says Verse 14 I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is, the reason I want to come to you, the reason I want to preach the gospel to you, the reason I want to minister under you is because I'm under obligation to do so. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel, to minister to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Well, First of all, what does he mean by these categories? Well, in the ancient world, there were some Gentiles who were either Greeks or were willing to take on Greek culture. So maybe gentiles who weren't born greek but they're willing to be uh the term here is hellenized they're willing to learn the greek language learn the greek customs learn the greek culture for all intents and purposes they become greek there are others who do not learn greek culture do not learn greek language and among these gentiles they're referred to as barbarians so if you want to say the entire gentile world in the day of paul you could divide them up into two camps greeks and barbarians. This isn't Paul saying, I want to minister to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to every other Gentile, forget them. No, you can simply divide the group in this way. All Gentiles would either be Greek or barbarians. Those who've taken on Greek culture and language are those who haven't. The wise and the foolish, I think, is simply a, a way to parallel that. Those who've pursued this and those who haven't. In other words, what Paul's saying is, I'm under obligation to preach to all Gentiles. I'm under obligation to minister to and take the gospel to and build up and encourage all Gentiles but when we hear that i think it can rub us the wrong way paul says i'm under obligation right i mean a few weeks ago when when, or last week when it was my wife's birthday and i got her a present which I, i i rarely have done to my shame and i did this time i think it probably would have taken a little bit of the steam out of it if i said well i just felt obligated to do this because you're my wife and you're getting older so when we hear Paul say I'm under obligation right Paul he wants to come he's coming to preach the gospel to us that's great well I'm under obligation Oh, right my kids are obligated to do chores of the house I don't think any of them wakes up and just thinks I'm so excited to do my share in upholding the Tankersley family household right no it's an obligation that just almost by necessity creates this sense of blah right and so, so, so what's, what's Paul doing? Is, that, is that, was that what he's saying in verse 14? You know, before you get too excited or feel too loved by me, just understand this is obligation. And that's, I don't think that's what he's saying. Why? Because look at what he writes in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay, so wait, hold on a second. He's under obligation, but he's also eager how do we bring those two worlds together how is it that something can be an obligation that makes us eager an obligation that actually excites us how do eagerness and obligation go together well I think I can give you an example let's say you're wandering around in the desert area with people that you love and you're all dying of thirst and all of a sudden, you walk over a dune, and on the other side of the dune, you look and you discover a running stream of fresh water. So much that you could drink from it all day long, and there would be plenty more to come. All of your friends could drink from it and build and make a civilization there, and you're all going to be fine. The water is plentiful. Maybe you even rush down and you first begin to drink it so that your thirst is satisfied. In that moment, Are you obligated to tell the others you just found a stream of fresh running water or are you eager to tell the others that you just found a stream of fresh running water? The answer, I think, is both, right? If you love them and you found something that you know they need that is so satisfying to your soul, you are compelled I must tell them about this stream I just found or you might say I am more than a little eager to make sure they all get this good news you probably can't even wait can you to run back up the dune and let them know I found it what you're looking for I know it well one of the reasons I wanted us to sing the songs we sing today. The reason I wanted wanted Blake to read the text in Galatians that he read earlier today is because when you read the book of Galatians, it reads like an individual who has said, you don't have to go back to the law and keep trying to put yourself under a system that says, do this and do this and do this and do this and then God will approve of you. You don't have to do that. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done it all for you. He's lived the perfect life. He's died to pay for your sins. He's been raised from the dead on the third day. Trust in Him. And when we place our faith in Him, He frees us from condemnation. And that freedom from condemnation, that freedom that says, I'm approved of by God and loved by God. And I get to walk with Him in that place. It's something that Christ wants for you. And it's something I know. And Paul's heart has just been captured by the glory of the gospel. And so if you read Galatians, he frames the argument a hundred different ways. One of them in the text he did then. I've told you very straightforwardly. Now let me give you an allegory of Hagar and Sarah. But he just goes on and on and on. I mean, look at it from different facets, but it's all getting to the same point. Brothers and sisters, Christ has granted us freedom from condemnation. You don't have to be enslaved to it again. Paul has discovered such glory in the gospel and what it means for him and what it's done for him that he is both compelled, obligated, and eager to go and preach the gospel to others. He wants others to know the glory and the joy and the freedom that he has found in Christ. And my prayer is that this would characterize all of us, that we would all have hearts that so delight and so have benefited and and so realize the glory of the gospel that we just find our hearts compelled and eager. I want others to know this glorious freedom of the gospel. And one of the reasons that I want us as a church to be captured by the glory of the gospel and all that it means is because only when you've been captured by how glorious the gospel is and all its benefits for us are, only when you've been captured by that will you begin to love one another. If you don't know the security of the gospel, then you might look at a brother and sister and think they have something you need. You might look at a brother and sister and think, I I I need to be exalted above them. And so this can lead to backbiting and gossip. It can lead to envy and covetousness. It can lead to something good happening in their lives. And instead of rejoicing in it, you kind of just want to stand far off and just look down upon them. But when you realize, in Jesus Christ, I have everything. In Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about approval because I have the approval of God himself. In Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about riches because Jesus Christ is an heir of all things. and I'm a co-heir with him in jesus christ i have every bit of security i need so i don't have to worry about being exalted well then in that place if you realize that then you can look at your brother and sister and instead of envying or coveting or gossiping or putting them down or all the sorts here you can then say i love you and i want to bring you up and i want you to know the joy and security i have here you can be like paul to the galatians i want you to know it is for freedom that christ set us free what then does a heart look like that loves god and has been captured By Christ seeking his honor, thankful to the Lord, we treasure prayer, we love the church. And finally, we've seen and are captured by the glory of the gospel and consequently want others to know it as well because we're both obligated and eager. Now, it may well be this morning that that description or some part of it you hear and you say I just don't think that's quite my heart and so one of the great things that we get to do is is, is really two things this morning one we're gonna take a moment of silence there is a very practical reason we do that and in that moment of silence the ushers come forward the musicians get in place it works right but there's another benefit to that moment of silence and it's while the ushers are moving and the musicians are getting in place that you and I can use that moment of silence just to pause in prayer. And maybe one of the things you want to say is, Lord, I just want to confess my heart's not like this, and I want to ask for your grace. Make me thankful. Make me prayerful. Make me love the church more. Make me see the glory of the gospel more and be captured by it, and want others to know it as well. And so that moment of silence just gives us an opportunity to pray. And then we get to come to the table, which is the perfect complement to that. Because if you say, Lord, I've confessed my need, will you meet the need that I have just asked you to meet? Then this meal reminds us, he met us in our greatest need. And if the one who saw us in our greatest need as his enemies shed his blood, gave his body for us so that we might be made children of God, why would we ever doubt he would then freely give us everything we need to honor and make much of him? so if you're a believer this morning I I want to encourage you in our time of silence pursue the Lord and then join with me as we distribute the elements together we'll eat of them together and then we'll drink together if you're not a believer this morning I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ let these elements pass by you because you've not yet been united with Christ by faith but I want to plead with you to believe if you want to talk to me or somebody else after the service we would love to talk to you and then we are going to urge you to make your faith public by being baptized again if you are a believer you profess faith you're a member of a gospel preaching church we're going to distribute these elements together and as we distribute them we're going to be singing together about how great our god is from psalm 23 the king of love is our shepherd and so let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning